Well, it's always a pleasure to be gathered here on Sundays. In fact, I just had a conversation uh, this morning with one of you about, uh, about the blessing of being able to come into the house of the Lord and to be able to worship and to be able to praise him. I mean, when we think about Old Testament Israel, when we think about the Old Testament and how Israel was drawn by God to be his people, one of the laws that he established was that there'd be a day of rest, which was the Sabbath. That was a day in which they would not work, unlike the rest of the world who did work, typically a full seven days. And what would they do on that day of rest? Well, it was very obvious to those who were a worshiper of God, what else would we do aside from go to the house of the Lord and be able to worship the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so we have that blessing within the church. We have that blessing within this church body. And the church body is a lot more than just a building. In fact, technically, the church is not a building at all. What is the church? It's the people. It's the believers. You guys are the church. This is just a structure that allows us to meet together. And so the church is the people. This is the house of God as constructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we end up seeing in the passage that we'll look at this morning. So as we consider the blessings of being in the house of the Lord, I mean, I'm not even thinking of when my wife and I, when we go on a trip, when we're away from home for a while and then we come back home, I'm sure you experience the same thing. You come back home and what my wife always says in this kind of sweet melodic way is home sweet home and you know that feeling right but there should be no place that grants us greater peace and joy than to be in the house of the lord to be in the presence of our god to be in the presence together with our fellow brothers and sisters in christ and this passage that we've been looking at over the past few weeks ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 has really said a lot in terms of how God has united us through Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus Christ has done in order to bring us together. You may remember that in verses 11 through 13, when we take a look at what we have covered before, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, reminds us that we as Gentiles were separated. We were separated in five ways. We were separate from Christ. We're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We're strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope and we we're without God. But we also got a hint of some hostility between Jewish people and ourselves. The Jewish people who were the so-called circumcision would often refer to us as Gentiles as the uncircumcision. And that was a division between two groups that was partially brought about because of all the blessings that had been poured out upon the nation of Israel. Because they understood the covenants, they understood the promises. There were special blessings that came with being a part of the nation of Israel that did not exist with any other nation. But God always had a plan to bring Gentiles into the plan of redemption. God had always had a plan to save Gentiles. And so when we come to the conclusion of 11 through 13, verses 11 through 13, we find that while this division had existed before, we had been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then last week, we took a look at verses 14 through 18, and we saw Christ's work in reconciling us to God and to one another. We found that in verse 14, Christ is our peace. He united both groups, both Jews and Gentiles. He made them into one new man. You see that in verse 15. 
He reconciled them into one body. We see that in verse 16. And he reconciled them to God. And he gave us access to God the Father through one spirit. That's in verse 18. And so while we see a lot of divisions between nations, we see a lot of divisions between people groups all over the world. It doesn't matter where you go. You see those divisions. But the greatest and most significant division that happened up to the time of Jesus Christ wasn't any of the wars that happened between nations. And there were plenty, just as there are today. It wasn't the disputes between the various sects of Judaism, though there were many. The greatest division happened between Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus Christ, with his death on the cross, brought those two groups and made one new man out of them. Removed all the barriers of division. If he could remove that barrier between Jews and Gentiles, then all other barriers that we can think of doesn't matter. They simply don't matter. We come from different cultures. We're raised by different parents. We might come from different countries. We might have different um, things that have been taught to us by various adults as we've been growing up. We've been going to different schools that have taught us various ways of thinking. But when you are made a new man in Christ, what's going to drive your thinking, what's going to drive your emotions, your passions, your desires, is going to be first and foremost God and his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest commonality that we can have with one another. And so Christ, when he brought us reconciliation, not only did he bring reconciliation between peoples, that's the horizontal relationship, but he brought reconciliation between us and God. That's the vertical relationship. He removed the enmity, the fact that we were enemies of God and that we were enemies of one another prior to knowing Christ. And so that brings us to our passage for this morning from verses 19 to 22. And in your... In your bulletin, the third outline is God's purpose in making us his dwelling place. God's purpose in making us his dwelling place. Now, we have four verses here, but there is so much richness and depth in these four verses that I'm going to break this up. So there's going to be a part four to this. But hopefully I'm going to let you out a little bit earlier. All right. So we're going to take a look mostly at verses 19 and 20. I'll let you, we'll take a look at verses 21 and 22 as well, but not in so much detail. And then next time we come together, I'm going to show you some sweeping Old Testament verses that help really point to the reality that is being conveyed through this passage. So as we take a look at verse 19, in fact, let's go ahead and read everything, starting from verse 11, all the way to our passage this morning. Starting in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have our access in one spirit to the Father. And that brings us to our passage this morning. I'll go ahead and read through it, and then we'll break it down. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, wonderful passage that really focuses upon our unity as believers, our unity together as one body, as the church. And as I mentioned before, as we know, the church is not the literal building. The church is the people. The church is the body of believers who come together for worshiping the Lord. And as we look at verse 19, it says then, it starts here, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That, that initial part, the so then, this is the conclusion. After having read what we just read from verses 11 through 18, this is the conclusion of all this. This is what Paul says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, what's the difference between strangers and aliens? Well, we saw the word strangers in verse 12 earlier when Paul said that you were at one time strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, a stranger, this could also be translated as a foreigner. The idea that almost like a tourist. I mean, if we were to think of it in today's terms, it's almost like a tourist that comes visiting the country. They can't stay here for long. They're only here to, to, to be a tourist, and after a certain point of time, they've got to go back. But the other word, aliens, this had not been mentioned yet by Paul until here. And when he says aliens, he's, this word is used to convey someone who's living in the land, living in the land, but doesn't have quite the privileges of those who are citizens. And that concept is not foreign to us, right? I mean, there's a lot of people here who live here in the United States. They live here legally. They may have a work visa or some other type of visa. Um, They may have their green card, however you want to refer to it. But they don't have the same rights and privileges as a U.S.-born citizen or those who have become citizens of the United States. So we understand this concept. Whether you're a stranger, whether you're a tourist, or whether you're a foreigner, there is a difference between you and those who are citizens of the land. But here what Paul is saying is that that is no longer the case for you. You are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens. You're not just some tourist who's here for a short time. You're not someone who just simply lives here, but you're separated from the people of God. But rather, when we continue in verse 19, we read this. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now, let's think about this for a moment. When he says fellow citizens... Remember, in verse 12, previously you had been excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You had been excluded from the nation of Israel. You had been excluded from the rights and privileges that came with being a part of Israel. But now you're fellow citizens with the saints. Now, that does not mean that you are now part of Israel. That's not what that means. Because remember, early on in this passage, it said that God took Jews and Gentiles and made one new man out of them. So this is referring really to a new creation. You are citizens now of, with all the saints. And when we see all the saints, the saints 
is not referring to the nation of Israel. The saints is now referring to all those who have been true believers in God. And going back to the Old Testament, that's always been the case. Though there had been a nation of Israel, and though Israel rebelled against God, they were disobedient to God, we know that by the grace of God, there had been true saints, true believers in God. Right? I mean, going even back to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. You know, you had men like the, the, the prophets. You had men like David, who was a man after God's own heart, despite his shortcomings despite the sins that he had committed. So we know that there were saints in the Old Testament. Moses would be another one. There were saints in the Old Testament who were truly of the household of God. And now what we've been made into is, is a part of that same, we've been made fellow citizens with those saints. And at the end of verse 19, we are of God's household. So when it says we are citizens, first of all, this points to a reality that we are not tourists, we are not aliens. We are not simply in the land, but without those rights and privileges. But we have all the rights as any of the saints of God have. Because we have been made a saint by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have those rights. And it's just like those of you who come from a foreign country, and then when you go to finally become a U.S. citizen, that ends up being a very significant moment in your life, is it not? You know, because you know from that point on, you have rights, you have privileges. You can't simply just be deported out of the country. You, you have privileges that you did not have before. And that's what this is saying, that we now have privileges as, as members with all the saints. But specifically, specifically, we are members of God's household. Now, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, Ephesians 1, verse 5 says that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. When it says that we are of God's household, this is even better than simply just being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are of God's household. We are the children of God. And as children of God, we not only have rights and privileges, but we have access to God the Father. And that's what Paul had just gone through telling us in verse 18. That we have access in one spirit to the Father. We can lift up our prayers to him as his children, knowing that he loves us as his Father. So we are not just fellow citizens with all the saints, but we are members of God's household. We are a new people for God. That is the conclusion to all this, that, that God, through Jesus Christ, has made us a new people have made us a new group of people with rights and privileges, and we are able to call God the Father our Father. Which is why when we pray, we can pray to him as our Father, and not simply the creator of the universe. He is a personal God. He is there for us. But when we get past these verses, specifically verse 19, that talks about us as a new people for God, we get to verse 20, and from verse 20 to 22... What Paul's going to point out is that we are not just a new people for God, but we are a new establishment for God, a new establishment. Now, take a look at verse 20. Verse 20, it says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Let me, let me just take a moment um, to help define what we mean by apostles and prophets, and then we can understand what this foundation is that's being built. Well, first, apostle. 
When we think of apostle, we typically think of the original 12 disciples of Christ, right? And then plus Paul. That's what we normally think about. In the Greek, the word apostle literally just means messenger, one who is sent. You are sent to complete a task. You are sent to do something on behalf of the Lord. So it literally just means messenger. It could actually refer to a, a human messenger on behalf of another human. But in this case, in this context, we're talking about one who was sent by the Lord. So this is a messenger and used most often for the original 12 plus the apostle Paul. Um, but what we find is that when you study the scriptures, there's actually perhaps more than just those 12 and the apostle Paul. Um, turn with me a couple of few books over to the left uh, to 1 Corinthians. So to the left of Ephesians is Galatians, and then you get to 2 Corinthians and then 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This will be a, towards the end of 1 Corinthians. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just point out this to you so that you're clear when we talk about apostles, uh, what, what the range of this word could be referring to. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is actually giving his testimony of salvation and how he got to how Jesus Christ, um, what happened to Jesus and who he appeared to and how he ultimately appeared to Paul himself. But when you take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, this is what Paul says. For I deliver to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So you have the gospel right there in verses 3 and 4. And then verse 5, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, when we see the reference to the twelve, who are we thinking of? Yeah, you're thinking about those original disciples, right? He appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, then, he re, he, then to the twelve, which is those original twelve apostles. Verse 6 says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So this is one of the hints that there were perhaps more apostles than those original 12. But we know that those original 12, including Paul, were distinct. Um, because typically when, when the Bible refers to the apostles, that's the group that we're referring to. But there were more than just that. And then verse 8, look at what Paul says here. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So this is also from Paul as he's describing this. This is a strong indicator to us that Paul was the last of the apostles. So today, sometimes you'll hear people talking about living apostles today. There are movements like the New Apostolic Reformation. There are movements like the Mormon Church that have an, a living apostle. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, essentially is claiming to be a living apostle for today. But we have no evidence from the scriptures that apostles have, have continued onward beyond this initial apostolic era. And in fact, when we look at Paul's words here, it seems to suggest that he was the last of the apostles called. But there were certainly more than 12, though we know that those initial 12 plus Paul were quite distinct um, from everyone else who had been called. So going back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we have the apostles, but we also have the prophets. Now, what are prophets? Prophets are essentially anyone who's been appointed to bring forth any message from God. That could be a prophecy, that could be teaching, that could be revelation. 
A prophet is basically a mouthpiece for God. Um, A prophet speaks forth God's revelation to the people. Now, some have looked at this when it refers to the apostles and prophets and have concluded that this includes all the Old Testament prophets. So Paul here, he's not only talking about the apostles, um, the disciples of Jesus Christ and some of the other apostles, but also the prophets going all the way back to the Old Testament. But I don't believe that is the case. And you need to look no further than chapter three of Ephesians. Look at chapter three, verses four through six. Chapter three, verses four through six. Paul says this, starting in verse four. By referring to this, and he's talking about this mystery that Gentiles have now been included. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So what is this mystery? This mystery is that Gentiles are now saved through the blood of Christ. And he says that these are now being revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Obviously, in that context, the prophets is not talking about Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets did not testify as clearly to that. But the New Testament prophets, starting from the apostles and all who would travel with the apostles and have been called by God to reveal these truths, they're the ones that proclaimed it to the church. And in verse 6, he says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So in context, I believe when Paul is talking about the apostles and the prophets, he has in mind the more recent prophets along with the apostles, the ones who have proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when you go back to chapter 2, verse 20, and we read at the start, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we consider that the apostles and prophets were all the New Testament apostles and prophets. And what that means is that this foundation that has been built, this foundation that consisted of those New Testament apostles and prophets, this foundation is the foundation for the church. This is our foundation. This is our foundation together. And what is that foundation? That foundation is essentially the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ has arrived. He has fulfilled all the prophecies and he has come to bring salvation to all those who would believe, Jews and Gentiles. So we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And when you kind of think in terms of, well, how do we separate apostles from prophets? Think of it this way. All apostles were also prophets. Okay, let me say that again. All apostles were also prophets. They were called for a given task, but they also proclaimed God's truth. But the reverse is not necessarily true. Not all prophets were apostles. And you can just look in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Some people are given the gift of prophecy. That does not make them an apostle. They are given the gift of prophecy. They can speak forth God's word, God's truth, but they don't don't have the mark of, um, of an apostle. So we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And and for today, I mean, in that time, it was obvious to them that these were the people that founded the church starting on the day of Pentecost. Right. When you look at the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost is when Peter proclaimed that first sermon, that first sermon to the, the Jewish attendees proclaimed that Jesus Christ is the one who is the Messiah. And that was the start of the church when they were cut to the heart and they ended up believing. So it was the start of the church. And for us, even today, though we did not live in that time, we can say without doubt that the foundation of the church is the prophets and apostles, even though we never knew them. 
What is the legacy of the prophets and apostles to us today? It's the word of God. Because the New Testament books were all written by prophets and apostles. That the word that was established was all established by prophets and apostles. What we believe today is the same thing that was taught by the prophets and apostles back then. The word never changes. Our faith never changes. What we need to believe in never changes. And this is so important because we're living in a world today that continually changes, doesn't it? We see things today that are blackballed that 10, 20 years ago we would never have thought of. How many genders exist today? How, 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 how do people respond when they want to be identified as a she, even though they were born as a he? You know, and now there's a lot of discussion. You know, now, now you look at health forms, you go to hospitals. There's a lot of hospitals now that have more than two checkboxes now for gender. Male, female, and non-binary. Right? And if you don't affirm that, then you're a hater. If you don't affirm that, then you're transphobic or you're, you're gender, you're phobic of, of gender fluid people. You know, so there's a lot of things that are happening today. And of course, if you look at the democratic debates, you know that they're trying to take away the rights from the churches away. I mean, that was unthinkable in the past, but now they're trying to take away the tax exempt status if they don't affirm unbiblical movements. And so we're getting closer and closer to a time where to be able to stand up for the word of God means that there's going to have to be a real price that you're going to have to pay in public. But we can rest assured that no matter how much the world's wisdom changes, no matter what they teach in universities, no matter how much they change their minds over time, over how the world originated or how people came to be or how we are to identify themselves, no matter how many ideas are floating out there, God's word never changes. And that is something that we can rest in. That is the legacy given to us. That is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that have been granted to us. But this foundation is nothing without the cornerstone. Look at the end of verse 20. It says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, what's the significance of cornerstones? Well, if you were living in that day, Buildings that were built at that time, the most important stone, you know, these buildings were built of stone stacked one on top of each other. The most important stone were the cornerstones. You had to have the right shape, the right size, the right cut of that cornerstone or else that building would not be secure. It would not be stable. It could fall to pieces very, very easily. So that cornerstone was the most important building piece of that entire building. But in this case, when we're talking about the church, we're not talking about a literal building, but we're talking about a spiritual building. And in this case, there's not four cornerstones. There is one, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. The foundation means nothing without the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. That's why it's amazing. I read through Psalm 118 this morning as part of our reading. And when you read through Psalm 118, what you see is is the psalmist just giving praise to God for God's salvation. But you have that one verse that sticks out almost like a sore thumb that says the chief cornerstone, the ones that the builders rejected, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And and that when you look at that and in context, it's difficult to understand what it is that the psalmist means by that. 
the stone that was rejected by the builders. We're, we're here praising God for his salvation. And then prior to even knowing about Jesus Christ, they're talking about this stone that the builders rejected. I think that was Psalm 118, verse 22. This stone has become the chief cornerstone. And so now we realize this side of the cross, we now realize having had Jesus Christ come and all these things being revealed to us, that that chief cornerstone was the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a beautiful way, this traces back to one of the greatest Old Testament provinces, which is the Davidic covenant. We're going to look at it more in, um, in a future week when we get back together and take a look at this. But one of the promises of the Davidic covenant, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And you know what the Lord told David? You're not going to build a house for me. Your son will. And initially it was Solomon. But Solomon wasn't the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Who would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would be the one to build the house for the Lord. And not only would he build it, but he is the chief cornerstone. I mean, it's wonderful just how the Old Testament ties in to the new and these promises that we read about. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. There is no foundation without him. Now, let's go ahead and read verses 21 and 22. I'm going to cut this part short, but we'll go ahead and read through it. Just make a few observations. Starting in verse 21, we read, In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, as we look at these verses... And really going back to verse 20, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, you're going to notice a lot of building terminology. And by now, it shouldn't be any surprise. Paul is really building on this analogy, this illustration of a building to help us understand who we are in Christ. I mean, looking back again at verse 20, you have been built on the foundation. At the end of verse 20, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together. And then at the end of verse 21, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then in verse 22, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. We see a lot of strong references, building references to help us understand that we are a spiritual building being put together by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are that building. We are the church. And just to reemphasize it, the church is not a physical structure. The church is the people. The house of God is being constructed with you and with me and with everyone who truly calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are each building blocks for one another. We're being fitted together. In verse 21, it also says that we're being fitted together. Now, I love this word. Because being fitted together shows that this is not just a mindless project. This is not something that God is just doing haphazardly. This is not something that he's just going through the motions. The idea of being fitted together shows that there is intelligent design with regards to how this building is being put together. That he is fitting us together in a way that we are going to blend perfectly into the house of the Lord. And how is it that we are fitted together? Well, we know that the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, does he not? He gives us gifts. Some of you know your gifts. Some of you don't. You know, the more you serve within the body of Christ, the more your gifts will be made known to you. You don't need to go online and and do those um, do those questionnaires. All right. 
Let the body of Christ, let your service in the body be the, what reveals to you what your gift to the body is. But you know who it is that gives you that gift? Who gives you that gift? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, they're all working together. But in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that the Holy Spirit is the one. By his will, he gives you that gift for the common good of the church. For the common good of the church. So this idea that we're being fitted together is this idea that we are to blend together perfectly. And God is the one that ensures that happens according to the gifts that he gives us. But those gifts come with a purpose. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4 and look at verses 11 to 12 first. Because as we consider God as the master builder that he's putting together this building, chapter 4, verse 11, verses 11 and 12, Paul reminds us that God has given gifted men to the church, but he, he has given them for a purpose. Look at verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for what? The work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Once again, you're seeing the same kind of language. You're seeing the same kind of terminology. You're seeing the same idea that a building is being put together by God himself. And he has given certain men to the church in order to equip you for that work of service that you may contribute to the building of that structure to the building of the church. And go down to verse 14. Here's the result. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. By the way, you know what that verse is? That verse is discernment. The more you understand the scriptures, the more equipped you are to spot false teaching. Amen. And beloved, it's coming. Coming from the big cities, I know that there is a lot of false teaching going on in the churches there. Coming to a place like Imperial Valley, we're a little bit more conservative. We haven't bought into all the worldly ideologies, but it's coming. I know many of you already know someone either in your own family or someone close to you who has already felt the effects of the LGBTQ movement. It's coming. And you need to be equipped. You need to understand the word of God to be able to stand firm in its truth. You need to be able to distinguish between a teacher who has capitulated, who has, who has sacrificed his own beliefs in order to please the world versus someone who is standing firm on the word of God. That is very important to us. But continue on, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we always have to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And look at this, verse 16. From whom the whole body being fitted, that's the same word, being fitted, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, is it any wonder why I wanted the motto of this church to be growing together in Christ? We, as brothers and sisters, need to be growing together in Christ, which means that we're being equipped first by our knowledge of what the Word of God says. We need to better understand what the Bible says. And we need to also, as we learn more and more about what the Bible says, we need to learn how we can serve one another. We need to learn how we can be more a part of each other's lives. 
And in this body, what does that mean? I mean, just simple things. You can start with simple things right now, like praying for one another. But guess what? You can't pray for one another unless you know what it is that the other person needs prayer for, right? You don't want to simply just say, oh, let them be blessed by God. No, you know, each one of you, many of you are going through very specific issues. You're going through very difficult trials in your life. And a lot of other people don't know about it. And one of the reasons why other people don't know about it is not only the fact that each one of us tend to be more closed off about what we're going through, but also we also are not proactive enough to reach out and get to know other people. This past week, which was a huge blessing, um, Alice had um, a couple of meetings with the women on Tuesday and then again on Saturday. Um, For me, we had the men's group uh, yesterday morning. Huge blessing. And I know for both groups, we challenged individuals for both groups to get together with one another, have coffee with one another, have lunch with one another, get to know one another, figure out where it is that you need to spiritually grow and start to be able to intercede for one another before the Lord. That's how you can start. And as you start to learn what each person needs, what each person is lacking, maybe someone is being discouraged, you can be there to encourage that person. You can be there to pray for that person. Beloved, on this, in this world, obviously our first priority, first and foremost, is God. Two greatest commandments. The first one is to love your Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen? Amen? Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus Christ then said, I give you a new commandment. Later on in John 13, he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. And this is how the world will know that you are mine by your love for one another. And so as we grow in Christ, we're not to just grow individually. We're not to grow apart from the church. We're to grow with the church. We're to grow with one another. And beloved, in all of eternity, when we're up in heaven, when we're in the glorious presence of God, our Father, we're going to be with each other for all of eternity. Why not get to know each other now? Right? This is your family for all eternity, so get to know each other now. Really get to know each other, love one another, and start there. And as you do so, some of your gifts will start to be revealed. And look for opportunities to serve within the church. A lot of you are serving in Awana. That's a huge um, encouragement to me, and so I'm thankful for that. But remember also, for those of you serving in Awana or for those of you serving in the youth ministry, be an encouragement to one another as well. Be there for one another. But put your brothers and sisters as, as your greatest, most valuable earthly relationships. Because spiritually, that's who matters the most in God's eyes, is the brother and sister that's to your left and to your right. That's your household. That's your family. We are to take care of one another. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the love of God, If all of this seems foreign to you, if you see, if this sounds strange that we are a building, that we're a structure, that we're here for one another, it may be because you don't understand your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, all of us will have to stand judgment before God. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will be found guilty before a holy God. For all of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are in need of his sacrifice on the cross in order to pay for our sins. None of us can earn our salvation simply by our good works. It doesn't work that way. 
because you have offended a holy God. And by trying to work on your own, you're trying to prove to God that you're good enough without needing his help. He sent his son, his only begotten son, into the world for a reason. And that was to die for our sins because we could not do it on our own. And those sins that he paid for on the cross, those sins ended up paying, that the price that he paid on the cross ended up paying for your sins if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And all it requires from you this morning is to repent of your sins, repent of your former way of life, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can talk to one of us. Don't leave this service. Don't leave today. Don't leave this building without talking to one of us. In fact, if I can have deacons and your wives, um, each of you stand up, please. Take a moment, just stand up. You can look around. We have uh, quite a few deacons and, and wives here. Thank you very much. You may be seated. If you do not know, know the Lord Jesus Christ, come talk to me. Come talk to them. Let us pray for you. Let us talk to you about your spiritual need. Let us lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ and how you can know that you are saved. But for the rest of us, I would encourage you once again to excel still more in your love for one another. This church really just shines in terms of its service. This, this church really shines in, pe- in terms of people who are willing to volunteer their time and effort to help teach the youth or to volunteer in things like Awana. But where I believe that we can really grow is in knowing one another, in not being so siloed from one another. You know, this church, it should be the case that when one of you are gone for more than a couple of weeks, someone else notices and says, we need to follow up with that person. Or if someone is gone, the other person knows exactly why that person is gone. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they're in the hospital. But beloved, help fulfill the will of God by being a part of the church body, by showing your love for one another serving one another, and growing together in Christ. Let's close in prayer.